Welcome to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. In this program, we take a fresh look at some of today's challenges from the economy, education, politics, security, defense, and much more. You'll be prompted to see and think about things just a bit differently. Now, here are your hosts, Ambassador Harry Thomas and Chief Alex Morales. Welcome to The Spotlight. We are your hosts, Ambassador Retired Harry Thomas. And I am the Chief, retired as well. Harry, who do we have today as the guest? We have the dynamic Billy Cantada, whose family are close friends of mine. And they even visited us in Zimbabwe, but they wisely waited until after Alex left. <laughs> oh, that was feel bad. Yes. Hi. Thank you for having me. Hi, Ambassador Harry. Hi, Alex. And I have to be very specific why I call um, Ambassador Harry Ambassador, because my father will get mad at me if I don't address him as such. So that's a it tells you a little bit about culturally how we have a lot of respect for people in authority or parents, friends. So I just want to point that out there that it's so important for me to call him Ambassador Harry. Uh, I I totally understand. First of all, thank you for taking the time and welcome to the spotlight, uh, yes. Beatrice. Uh, I totally understand. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story before we start. Is uh, when when I of course I was working for Harry. He was my ambassador as well, and it was funny because my wife was her his HR as well, and. When he retired, I told my wife, hey, Harry is stopping by and he's slipping over tonight. He's just going to visit us. And after like a couple of hours, he, she didn't get it and said, well, hold on. What do you mean, Harry? Are you talking about the ambassador? What do you mean he's staying over? So I totally understand what you're talking about. So, Harry, go ahead and start it. Hey, let's start. Uh, we want to learn more about Billy. So, Billy, tell us about yourself. Great. So um, I also want to uh, pay attention that I go by Beatriz or Billy. So Beatriz is my full name and Billy is my nickname. And I will tell you, my nickname is not connected to my first name, but there is a story behind that. I was actually named after Billie Jean King. So okay. my parents at the time, um, I guess when they were pregnant with me, they were big um, tennis fans. So my older sister, her name is Christina, and she was named after Chris Everett, and I'm Billie Jean King. Um, so I just wanted to share that piece. Um, I was born in, yeah, I was born and raised in the Philippines. Um, I am one of four siblings. Um, I have two sisters and a brother. I came to the U.S. back in 97 for my undergraduate degree. I went to Boston College both for my undergraduate and graduate degrees. So I spent a good chunk of my <laughs> adulthood here in Boston. And clearly, we know um, Ambassador Harry and I, we come from rival alma maters. Just saying. <laughs> I can just see that saying. already. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so I've um, been in the U.S. again, more than half of my adult life. My background is um, in human resources. So I started um, with a degree in human resources. And I'm actually now um, in the field of diversity, equity, inclusion, which I oh, wow. want to say is fairly, when I say fairly new, probably in the past 15 years, it's um, bec uh, become more prominent um, in the uh, sort of professional fields. Um, but it's also an interesting time to be in this field. I agree. I agree. 
So, Billy, why did you select a Jesuit college? Um, so, Ambassador Harry, Jesuit college, um, maybe you might know since you have lived in the Philippines, but the Philippines is a, a predominantly Christian nation. It's probably the only Christian nation right now in Asia. So, that is um, something that I'm proud of um, to say just because that is my upbringing. Um, and Catholicism, more specifically, I would say about 80% of the population practice Catholicism. So it is front and center um, in our society. And it's also very different from when you think about religion here in the United States. It is sort of very much embedded in our culture. So I lived and breathed um, praying to God, or it's so normal to go to a party and to start a meal um, with a prayer, or maybe you invite your friend who's a Jesuit priest to come and say mass, and then you have a meal. And then the, when you're ex- uh, having exchanges with your friends, whether it's on the phone or text, uh, no fail, you'll get, I'll pray for you. So it's so um, embedded in our culture that for me, I, ca- I came from um, a private school, so I was very much sheltered. And when I was given the opportunity to study in the United States, I didn't really want to lose that, um, that, um, those roots of mine. So it was very important for me to stay within a Jesuit tra- tradition so I could still be true to myself. Oh, very interesting. AMDG. AMDG. Yes, AMDG. Yes, all for the glory of God. Yep. So what advice do you have knowing that you were, you know, you came to the Mer- United States to study. What advice do you have for foreign students seeking for to study in America? Um, in many ways, it's a great opportunity. I would say it opens so many doors for you as an international student if you choose to uh, work or get further studies. Um, the one thing that I will say is um, sometimes, depending on your exposure to um, the Western culture, it might be a culture shock. And other times it might... Um, feel a little more seamless, depending again where you're coming from. But I think the um, the opportunity to study in America allows you also to meet other international folks from different backgrounds. Like I think that is such a plus, uh, uh, an opportunity. And given that we are such a global um, world now in the sense that, you know, we are connected to each other um, thanks to the internet, thanks to, Um, just technology. So really being exposed to people from different backgrounds, it's really key. Well, Billy, we are a nation of immigrants, something we're very pleased about. Filipino immigrants add so much to our fabric. Why are Filipinos so successful here? Um, Filipinos by nature, they're collectivists. So what that means is they're always thinking of the group, not individuals, but of the group. And maybe um, I would say in the 60s, 70s, there was the start of the migration of the Filipino workers and Filipino workers left the Philippines because they wanted to have better opportunities so that they can provide support for their families. So again, this collectivist nature um, and also obligation to family. So when they come to the United States or to other parts of the world, they're thinking, how can I support my family back home so that they can have a better life than I did? So with that in mind, there's this um, obligation to do well, to persevere. And that translates to sending money 
to family members back home. And it's not just your immediate family. Sometimes you'll see that it will be your your sister's kids or your neighbors, et cetera. So there is this piece where you want to take care of everyone in your community. And there is pride in that. There is so much pride when you say, oh, my, my relative is abroad and sending money to the Philippines. You know, there is so much pride um, in that aspect. So that's why I think they're very much um, successful here, partly also because um, we're not a culture that complains. We kind of suck it up. And I think that has to do with um, just being a developing country, knowing also that we're a tropical um, country that experiences a lot of um, typhoons and other natural disasters. Like we just we're so resilient. So I think that is a positive trait that we have. And that's why I think we're very successful here. Thank you. Yeah. You see, I want to go back a little bit because you just, when we, when, when we ask you about yourself, you kind of just gave us the abbreviated version of yourself. So uh, please don't be so humble and, you know, tell us about, you know, Where's Billy grew up? Uh, where's the town's name? How's your parents met or where they're coming from? Please. Oh, you want the details. Yeah. <laughs> Come on now. Yes. Um, so I grew up in Makati. So that is a city in the Philippines. I would say it's similar to like a New York City. So Got that's it. where... It's the metrop- metropolis, um, everything modern you can find there, and people want to flock to that city. So I was very much exposed to um, a lot of Western culture and um, Western, you know, commodities, restaurants, etc. Right, because that was the main place. So I, as much as I thought that I was um, Westernized, I was also still sheltered. Because again, I went to a private school, all girls school. I didn't really um, know how to interact with the opposite sex. Like I started interacting with them in high school. They were called soirees, but really it was just um, a chaperoned event in someone's house. Typically it's the woman's house or the girl's house at the time. And the parents are there and you um, invite a class of um, boys, probably the same year in a different school. And then you have activities to get to learn um, about each other. But that was to the extent of my exposure to guys. So really, I was, um, uh, I learned or interacted more with um, the opposite sex in college, which is vastly different from I would say, if you uh, went to a co-ed school. Correct. Correct. So correct. Definitely gr- grew up sheltered. Um, my parents were strict. I will say that um, I am very grateful to both of them for different reasons. So my mom was the disciplinarian and she really pushed all of us to um, study hard. Like that was sort of her priority for us. And um, I'm proud to say that all of my siblings and I, we have really excelled or continue to be successful in, um, in our careers. Like we've, we saw the value sure, of sure. excelling, doing your best, achieving and finding out what you want. And um, I'm grateful for both of them because they gave me the opportunity to come to the U S like, I think my life would be totally different if I stayed in the Philippines, not that it would be bad. It would just be different. Um, I wouldn't have the experiences that I've had here, like living in New Hampshire, living in Massachusetts. 
um, and, and also working for a prestigious institution. Oh, wow. Oh, we're here. Go ahead, Harry. Well, let's switch to that. Um, <laughs> your professional career. Uh, what is diversity, equity, and inclusion? So uh, um, before I say anything about it, I do want to um, note that it's now become a buzzword or a buzz, ter- buzz term. Um, and what I've tried to do, because people do ask me a lot about it now, again, because it's so um, popular. So what I do tell people, um, so like my elevator pitch response would be diversity is any difference that makes a difference. Mm-hmm. And then equity is um, actually diversity. And then I'm going to say inclusion is more like um, how do you create uh, programs, initiatives, how are you behaving so that everyone that has, that is different can feel welcome? And then you have, um, going back to equity. So equity more is how do you level the playing field? Because the playing field is not level. So what are the policies, structures in place that you can actually shift that? And an easy way to also describe equity is um Equality is everyone gets a pair of shoes. Equity is everyone gets a pair of shoes that fits them. So there is a difference between equality and equity. And the focus, again, is how do you base it on the needs of the individual? Oh, wow. Okay. So please tell us, why do people get defensive when we talk about uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion? Um. My personal experience and opinion is people are afraid to be labeled as as racist because inevitably when we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, there is a race or a racism component to it. So once you start talking about um, people from different backgrounds, ethnicities, and then talking about the history of the U.S., since we are in the U.S. context, there you start feeling people getting uneasy because they don't want to be called racist. Because again, they're, they imagine being racist is being a member of the Ku Klux Klan. So clearly these are sort of like, what has history told us what racism is? And to be associated with that is so like, yeah. no, very offensive. And that's not really the case. That's not what we want um, people to to get out of a conversation, but really to step back and see that racism is more like fish in the water. So this is an, another analogy that I use with um, folks that think about when you're fish in the water and you ask the fish, what is, what is water? They're going to look at you and be like, what is water? I don't know what water is. Because racism is embedded in our culture. So we don't know what it, we don't know what it is because we haven't stepped out of it to actually make the observation what um, racism is. So there's also one thing I do want to add um, that you shouldn't be afraid of sharks. You should actually be afraid of water as it relates to racism. Wow. And with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back.
Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. If you have a question or a comment about the program, drop us a line via email to support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Again, that's support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Now back to the spotlight. And we're back with the spotlight with Billy Cantala. And you finished in the previous segment, Billy, you say something that caught my attention. And I want to please, if you can expand on it. You say you should not be concern or worry about sharks, you should be concerned about water. Can you please explain our audience what do you mean with that? Never heard sure. that. Sure. So um, the analogy that exists um, about culture, so fish is to water and humans um, is to culture. So when you're asking people to comment about culture, they're not going to be able to tell you what it is because that's something that just part of who they are. They're not able to distinguish oh, I didn't realize that's what I'm doing, or I didn't realize that policy impacts me a certain way than and others a different way. So then I merged, and this is not my own thought, but um, I heard in a different uh, podcast too, that they merged the uh, culture water with shark, because usually what we think about sharks, we're afraid of them, right? They're in the water. But really, when we think about racism or understanding of it what we need to be dangerous about is that water because that water is insidious it is so um, embedded in all of us that if we're not aware it just we we go through it every single day so that is the piece where once you start being aware what that water is so what that culture is then you're able to be like oh wow you can make changes so you you can can you relate the water to being an environment in a way? Yes, exactly. The environment. Yes. Got it. Got it. Well, interesting. I'm gonna st- I'm gonna steal that one. Please. <laughs> Go ahead, Harry. Please. So Billy, you're successful. What makes a successful DEI professional? Um I have to say um Patience, empathy, and walk the talk. Now, what does that mean? Patience. So similar to, 
again, that water, the culture of fish in the water. If we're asking people to make changes, we're asking people to change the way they're thinking, change the way they were brought up to think. And that's very difficult, right? Because if I was brought up privileged and, you know, I worked hard and I got my job and we're asking um, and someone's asking me, well, no, actually, that's not the reality of other people. And for me, it's like, okay, that's not my reality. I don't have to deal with it. But at the same time, too, if we want to be an inclusive organization or an inclusive community, we want everyone to feel like they belong. There has to be some shifts to the way we think about things. So patience, because you don't just snap your fingers and change your attitude about things. It takes a while because, again, you're building another muscle within you that you haven't used. So that's why when I say patience, can you imagine changing people's behaviors one at a time? And that is a trickle effect. And eventually the environment, your organization, your community starts changing. It's not going to be overnight. So that's why I say patience is important. Empathy. Empathy because I, I have my own experience of my racial identity, my gender identity, but I may not have that experience of the other person. And to be able to really set aside my biases and learn to listen and, and see how the other person is able to live their life, that is important. Because ultimately, what we want to happen is we want everyone to have this access to the same resources to be successful. Right. That's that's the bottom line. If we truly want to live in a just society, we want everyone to have access to um, the same resources and live a life to their live their lives to the fullest. So that's a piece that I think is important. Empathy as a DEI diversity, equity, inclusion professional. I also think um, walking the talk. So if we are asking for example, other members of a community, or if I'm asking leaders to be more inclusive, I have to demonstrate what that is. I have to show that this is what it means to be inclusive so that they can see, oh, okay, now I know what you mean. You're not just saying things, you're actually showing us what is the appropriate behavior that shows inclusive inclusion. And last and certainly not the least is relationship building is so key. Because in order for um, things to change, you have to have a connection with the person you want um, the change to happen or a group or et cetera. That's you build the trust, you build um, the rapport so that when you're sharing ideas and you're asking people to think differently or behave differently, you already establish some kind of trust with that person so that they're not looking at you as, oh, you're, you're policing me, but, oh, you are offering me another perspective and maybe let's explore that. So those are the key um, traits, I think, um, for a good DEI professional. Let me ask you this because you just came out and I think you mentioned it in your introduction where you were talking about, you know, how the Philippine is a collective society, right? Yes. And uh, someone may say that the United States is an individualist society. Yes. Uh, is it possible that the challenge of uh, diversity, equi equity, and inclusion is based on that type of characteristic where in the U.S. might be uh, more challenging because 
it's an individualist society, meaning we think about ourselves first, so if we think about the collective, or is it the same challenging in a collective society? Do I? No, I, I see what you're saying. Um, I, I, I. Or is it something that is based on relationship, like you're talk, like you just say? I just came to my mind now. Right. So I, I don't necessarily make the connection in the sense that yes, the Philippines is a uh, we are collective, collective by nature, but our history um, of colonization is different okay. than the history of um, the United States, the history of racism and Got colonization it. in the United States. So there's a piece there that is vastly different. Um, and the other piece too, in the Philippines, it is less about race, but more about class. So oh, classism, okay. classism and colorism are very, very are prominent features in the Philippines. So it's very Hispanic, like, in a exactly, way. Exactly, exactly. And um, so I, I don't necessarily see um, the direct connection. Got it. Um, with the DEI and the collective nature or ver versus individualistic nature. Um, but definitely the different, our different um, histories of colonization impacts where we are now, where we are today. No. Thank you. No, I just came to my mind when you were talking about it. Go ahead. Appreciate it. Yes. No, I think it would be very difficult to be a DEI professional because you're under pressure from those who want you to help them and expect you to solve all their problems. Those who say, hey, you're DEI, you take care of it. <laughs> you know? and, and those who are opposed to it. So you have unrealistic expectations and sometimes not real support, right? Lies in the back. So what, and that's just my impression, I could be wrong, Billy. So what pressures does a DEI professional face? Um, Harry, you um, mentioned pretty much all of it, um, but I do want to go into detail. Please. So one of the things for a DEI professional, they, um, there is an unrealistic expectation by the community they serve that the DEI professional is the end all be all. Let mm -hmm. you the fix DNA, everything. Let you fix everything right away. And, exactly. And, and, okay. Yes. And when it doesn't work, they blame the DI professional. And the DI professional can sometimes become a scapegoat for why things haven't changed. So that is really a struggle or the pressure that um, DI professionals face. And at the same time, too, this is where the relationship building is important, because once you start building relationship again with the um, leaders of your organization, for example, you're inviting them to consider that the work is not solely on a DEI professional, but it's everyone involved and it starts from the top. So once you start building that relationship and start um, inviting, I use the word inviting, inviting leaders to consider their role in advancing equity and inclusion in an organization and how they also um, set the stage or set the tone for the rest of the organization to follow. So that's so key um, because the work 
is done by the community, not by one individual. If we want to, again, thinking about culture, if we want to shift culture, it is everyone committed or supporting that shift. It's, it, it, it resonates something you say, it's up to the leader to start leading in a way. It's kind of like in the military where the leader is a reflection of their followers sometimes. So if the, the leader doesn't, I guess, go down to the workers and say, hey, how you doing? How's your day? Or kind of like right. building that relationship. So it's, it's kind of interesting how you put it where the yes. leader has to be part of it. It's not like the DEI. You say, hey, build me a program and that's it, right? Right. I mean, here's the thing. You can have an organization and the efforts are grassroots level, right? They'll be like, we want DEI. But that's great, right? You have a, a, a collective voice saying we want DEI, but are they the decision makers? Are they the ones with access to resources? Not necessarily. It's usually the leaders. The leaders are key there. So you need the entire organization to shift. If we're talking about resources, it comes from the leaders or upper level management. Actually, Ari, it, it, it sounds like, remember in that organization that we were talking about, and we look at the leadership chart, and it was not, not, not diversity at all. And we were talking about how little, you know, they say, hey, we understand we have a problem. There was no representation of, uh, of minority at all in the leadership. So that could be a, also a challenge, right, Billy? Yes, definitely. So... I always think when I think of diversity, equity, inclusion, diversity, again, is representation. It's so important. You want to have senior leaders that reflect the demographics of your organization. So if you're saying, oh, we're a diverse organization, what does that mean? Does it mean you have gender representation? Does it mean you have racial representation? Age, do you have age representation? Like, you know, there's so many identities that you want to be able to be reflected in the senior leaders. So that's, that's important. But even more so is if you have the numbers, are you making it um, easy for them to succeed? Are you welcoming your leaders? Are you welcoming the people of color in your organization? Are you just recruiting them or are you also retaining them? Because they're two different um, strategies to recruit and to retain. And you need to know that they're different. And also, are you preparing your culture are you preparing your organization to welcome people from different backgrounds? So there's just multiple layers, how we understand DEI and the importance of um, engaging with senior leaders. And with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Join us every week for the Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. The Ambassador is host Harry Thomas, and the Chief is host Alex Morales. Together, they bring you different views on today's challenges 
From politics to education, security, defense, and the economy, the ambassador and the chief, along with their guest experts, outline new perspectives and lively discussions. Tune in to The Spotlight on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. If you have a question or a comment about the program, drop us a line via email to support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Again, that's support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Now back to The Spotlight. And we're back with Billy Cantala. Go ahead, Harry. Billy, I've been taking notes because I want to share with my colleagues, former colleagues, who are doing uh, DEI and experiencing a lot of problems. So <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of problems, even when people are well-meaning. So thank you so much for, for this. But let's continue. How and why does, does an individual DEI fail? Is it just not support from the top? Um, I, I think key, what's important is you definitely need leadership support, but that's not the only thing. Um, one of the things that um, could contribute to um, the lack of success is if you are creating initiatives that are just performative. So that is another buzzword in the field that we're having is we're, we're, so again, what is performative? Oh, we have that statement in our job posting that says we're an equal opportunity affirmative action employer. That's performative. What does that mean? What is the spirit behind that statement? Can you, um, manager, senior leader, can you demonstrate how have your, how has your organization reflected that? So like you can create all the statements you want. You can put all the buzzwords in a, a job description or in a, an announcement. But if there's nothing backing it up in terms of behavior, then that becomes performative. So that's important. Um, and that's why things do fail. Or the other piece, too, is I think we're not asking the right questions. And that is important to figure out. And I think um, when I was mentioning earlier about um, recruitment and retention, so we're bringing all these people in. Let's say, oh, we want to increase diversity. So let's just hire this, you know, 10 people, 10 um, people of color. But the question that we did ask is, is our environment, is our current um, culture open to that? How have we engaged them so that they have the skills, they have the, um, uh, the ability to welcome, welcome these new, um, whatever, in my example, uh, employees of color to the space. Like those are the things that we need to think about first and we need to pause and wait and ask the right questions. What ultimately is our goal? Are we just wanting to hit the numbers? Do we just wanna look good? Or are we really willing to make changes that can be a little bit uncomfortable, but for a greater good? And how are we going to measure it? How are we going to assess that the changes we make actually are helping 
meet the goals? Like these are questions that sometimes we don't ask. We just quick to react. We something happens, um, you know, in the news and then we're like, oh, we have to change. But then it's a reaction versus a strategy or ultimately let's pause and reflect on this. What do we want to happen? And are, are we willing to make the change to get there? So those are things that require patience. You know, the other thing I was thinking about, I was reading an article last night about gender, mm. how we recruit and evaluate for gender. And it's clear that they use many more adjectives, um, kind of masculine adjectives when you're advertising and also evaluating men. And for women, you use more communal, yes. interpersonal, all of these things, and that already sets these women up for failure. Exactly. Exactly. It was, it was fascinating. I, I, you know, I'm sure most men are guilty of that without even realizing. Yes. Yes. This goes again to the, the water, right? This is the water we live in for so many years. Who were in the workforce? Men, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's for so many years. When did the women come into the workforce? And even so now, women are not um, paid in parity with men. So, like, it still is an issue. It still is part of a system that we grew up in. Um, Again, not putting blame on anyone. But now that we're aware that it's happening, we can see the disparate outcomes. How can we make changes? So um, you're right. And I do tell people, I I appreciate what the, the gender piece when they're applying for jobs I always ask them, when you do your job posting, what kinds of words are you using? So are you attracting um, men or women, right? Because if you're not conscious about the word choices, you may attract more men or more women, whatever it may be. And then once you start evaluating candidates and getting letters of reference, you want to be also mindful that we have biases, the letter writers, the reference People also have biases, so pay attention to the words they're using. And then, yes, there might be biases, but then you you um, evaluate the person's qualifications um, in, in part of a larger picture, which includes the person's interview and um, CV. So then one doesn't um, overpower or outweigh the other. So that's where you start balancing things. And hopefully you have a more equitable process. Then you start paying attention to the words that are being used and be like, well, no, this woman can actually complete the job. And it has demonstrated that they can. Oh, wow. <clears throat> well, yeah. let's jump us another thing that's very uh, touchy or is something going on today is uh, what is critical race theory or CRT? Please explain it. Yes. To a guy like me who don't know anything about CRT. So um, I'll give you an overview because I know there's a lot of information out there, but I'll give you the gist of it. Um, Please. So the critical race theory, this has been around for 40 years. So again, it's not a new theory. It's been around. I will say it is a body of research, a framework. So again, this isn't just an opinion. This is, again, research has been done, scholarship, And this basically um, is a framework that helps us understand why racial inequities exist and how we can eradicate them. 
So again, we also study the impact of laws, systems, structures um, that are embedded with race and racism. So this, um, the problem that, that people are having now is they're using or um, there is a false narrative that basically says that critical race theory is um, blaming white people for racism. That's what I was going to ask you afterward, because I, right. I have I have a colleague and we are we talk the topic. Right. And it, his argument was like, well, when people are trying to imply CRT, they just say uh, because you're white, I'm I'm already racist. And I was like, well, I don't think that's what it means. Right. So can you please uh, explain, please? Yes, yes, exactly. So that is uh, a false narrative, and that is um, what's being shared by certain groups of people in the United States. So when they do that, um, it then makes our it makes folks be very defensive and Correct. they sh shut down, right? So that is again the false narrative um, tells white people. No, no, don't don't engage. It's 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 going to make you look unpatriotic. You're you're unpatriotic. Um, you are not um, racist. You as a white person, and then you become also. How do I say this? Um, Anti-American, if you believe in this, but that's completely false. So again, it basically the word critical is is an important piece there is because. The, the framework says you want to be able to think critically about the systems and structures that are in place. So you're not blaming anyone. So that's the key piece. So people are quick to think, oh, you're blaming me. No, 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 no. We're critically thinking about the systems and the structures that have been in place that have racial underpinnings. So um, if I think about it's... Um, Again, I grew up in the Philippines, so I'm not too um, familiar with with the um, the, re, the the sort of the uh, details of it, but redlining and how some groups of people are able to have um, access to mortgage and others are not. Right. So those are the things that are less about one individual or those bad actors, bad apples, but it's more about what are the policies, what happened in the past that has segregated, separated groups of people, giving them limited access to getting a mortgage, for example. So these are things, again, to step back and look at the complex systems that exist and how race has been part of that, not blaming any person. So that is the key part. And that's why I always say relationship building is important because there are people that are going to be defensive and rightfully so if you if you're fed the information that you're bad why will i listen why will i engage in conversation so when you build a relationship with folks that um probably are hesitant you can ask hey buddy um i'm hearing that some hesitancy tell me how you understand it what when you heard about critical race theory how did you understand it or what do you understand it to be And then if this is someone that you have a relationship with and rapport, actually, this is what I've heard or this is what I've researched. So there are a few researchers that have done extensive work on this, like Kimberly Crenshaw, for example. You can say I did research and the, the one of the creators of this theory is Kimberly Crenshaw. And this is what it means. So that's why, again, relationship, relationship building is important because then you want folks to see 
um, have you considered this to be another, a, a different way to look at things? Um, so, and those laws are created by the person or the system was created by a person. I'm not saying that's the actual person, but the, the system in which redlining was implemented, for example. Right. So, so this was back in the day. This was correct, like many years correct. ago. They're, they're, they're dead. <laughs> People are dead. Right. And, and we're not here to blame them. We're here to say this is what happened and here's how some of these policies have ben- benefited some people and have not benefited others. Um, and it could also be um, even like in terms of like education, why is it that um, our male black male students are given harsher punishments than um, white white students or white my white male students, for example, like yeah, it's yeah. try to think critically. What has happened? What have we? Again, the danger, the water. What 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 did we learn in the water? What was our water about? Right. So again, this is a difficult concept because we're asking people, we're challenging their way of thinking, right? And that's hard. That's hard. Do you think it's because if you challenge the way you're thinking and they discover that, wow, I was wrong, or perhaps, oh, I'm being benefit from whatever system it is, they all feel guilty, perhaps? Yes, yes. And for me, guilt is a very hard emotion to experience. But I also want to argue that it's a normal, natural human emotion that we all experience, right? Like we shouldn't be afraid of guilt. It's what we do with that. So the point is not to make someone feel bad or feel guilty. The point is, here's how you benefited and here's how other people haven't benefited. And if we want to listen to those who haven't benefited and see, oh, that's their experience that's not fair, right? Or whatever it may be, you know, whatever the experience is, then you are able to see it from their point of view. Because again, we're asking people to, um, to reflect on their way of thinking. And that's hard. That requires humility. That requires that it's okay to be wrong. Um, but it's so threatening, right? Because culturally we're told you, you, you're good. You're a good person. We want to be good people. And certainly we are, but that's a thing too. It's not about good and bad, but that's how, for whatever reason, we've associated being racist or, you know, being accused of that is bad, right? Versus seeing it as, well, let's step back and see it's not a personal attack. It is more of how are we part of this system, this intricate system that we, again, the water, the culture that we in and how we benefit it and how others haven't. So that gets, again, it's relationship building. It's tricky. And I will tell you, and, and I have to say another key trait for a DI professional is humility and also self-learn, self-learning. Like I, even though I'm in this field, I have so much to learn. I have so much to unearth. I have so many um, things that I don't even know I'm aware of. Right. So I, again, live in this water like all of you. And also, to be honest, I've benefited from some of the the privileges in the culture. So those are things that I'm also grappling with on a daily basis. Um, And that is a never ending process. That is part of the job. I think that's part of being human, too. Wow. 
Go ahead, Harry. Billy, how does a DEI and also a human resources professional in a very litigious society such as the United States keep from burning out? Oh, that, that is a million dollar question. And I will tell you that I've always, I've had multiple ties on the brink of burning out. Mm-hmm. I will tell you that. Um, I think number one, it's knowing that it's, a marathon, not a sprint. So I have to remind myself that I can't change the entire world. I can change one interaction at a time. Um, Surrounding yourself with people um, who also um, do the work, but also you get inspiration from each other, strength and inspiration from each other, um, just to keep going. You're like, you're doing the work, be hopeful. Um, And to always remember those moments where you made a difference, because those are the times when you feel like burning out. Just remember, you make a difference with each student, with each faculty member, with each staff member or colleague that you spoke with. Um, And if they were able to pause and say, oh, I didn't think of it that way or wow, that's a light bulb. Thank you. Hold on to those um, moments. And. Also, for me personally, to prevent burnout, I love to dance and I love to do yoga. So do what makes you happy, what brings you joy, and that self-care, too. Thank you. Go ahead, Harry. Hey, Billy, we can't leave. We can't close without you saying hi or greeting your friends back in the Philippines, even if you want to do it in Tagalog. (gasps) Ay, nako, masaya ako dito. Mabuhay, mga kaibigan, pamilya ko sa Pilipinas. Namimiss ko kayong lahat. Ingat kayo. <laughs> oh, go. great. Billy, ingat din. You take care of yourself. Thank you so much for the opportunity to connect and talk about something that is so meaningful to me. Um, and just the opportunity to um, talk about it. Well, thank you for your time. It was great having you. And again, feel free to come back whenever you want. Definitely. Thank you so much. This was the Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. Thank you for tuning into the Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. Be sure to join Chief Alex Morales and Ambassador Harry Thomas again on the Voice America Variety Channel.